Hey there, my name is Rob, this is Film Streak, and every week here on Film Streak, I'm going to recap another week of new movies that I've watched, and not necessarily new releases, but maybe something that I've just been meaning to watch for a long time, never got around to it, now I'm finally doing it, and now we're going to talk about that and see if it was worth it or not. Uh, also, this week, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to some of this stuff. Um, usually, I've been doing a lot of narrative feature films. And here we're going to take a look at some documentaries. And I really have been putting these off for a long time, but I finally kind of found a way to make these all into a nice cohesive group. And so I'm going to do all these together. And these are all documentaries about music and maybe even how different filmmakers and different artists that are in these uh, represent themselves and show maybe their their tastes for some of this music. So let's get started. All right. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Now we're at number 51. And this is Summer of Soul. This is directed by Questlove from The Roots. And this is uh, pretty recent, actually. This just just recently come out. But what this is, it's a it's a, a feature documentary that's pulling together footage from uh, Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969, it was this this film uh, music festival that was filmed, and the footage was just stowed away, just put away in a vault for decades, and now it's finally been recovered and reviewed and edited together into this documentary. Some of which is interesting that it's the people who were there during the festival in 1969. They've brought them back. They've found some of the people who were probably much younger maybe even kids at the time, but they brought them back to revisit this footage and talk about their experience and what that experience has meant to them over all these years. And that was a really refreshing way to look at this because the concert, the, the, the performances, it's all spectacular. It's all, you know, top quality and the artists, the lineup is, is spectacular, but taking this, approach of looking at it from the ground view, from the people who were just there to listen and enjoy the music, not necessarily the people who were there to perform, not the artists themselves, but, you know, taking this approach of hearing it from them directly, what their experience was and how it affected them and maybe how they almost didn't believe that they even went to this kind of an event, like this actually happened. Um, it was really intriguing. It was, it was just fascinating to watch. And so, you know, in terms of the performances themselves, I mean, there's the lineup is, is like I said, it's just all stars. I mean, it's Stevie Wonder, B.B. King, uh, the Staples Singers, Mahalia Jackson. I mean, there's a ton, Gladys Knight and the Pips. I mean, there's uh, Sly and Family Stone. Like, I think a lot of the Promotional stuff, you see a big picture of Sly up there, and the performances are all great. I mean, it, it looks clean, looks good, sounds good. Um, but I think the bigger thing is revisiting that period of time, you know, that specific moment in 1969 when, you know, the, the moon landing took place during this festival. And there's even an interesting look at people on the ground there in the day that this concert, this festival was more important to them than a man being on the moon. Why? Because this was right there. This was in their community. This was on their streets. 
This was not some man that was, you know, a, a world away and with millions of dollars behind him. This festival was representing the people, the feelings, the, the circumstances, the lives of everybody in their community. That's another thing that's really fascinating about so much of this concert. There's just a wide variety of performers and styles. Uh, you, you have, you know, artists that come from more of a jazz background. Uh, they have influences in that area. Uh, or even some of the, the gospel acts and the blues uh, acts that have found their way into soul music. And, you know, and even then it becomes, um, you know, you, you start to see artists that represent more of like an Afro-Cuban vibe or, or a Latin vibe. Um, they bring in all sorts of styles and artists that in some ways might have been overlooked or maybe only, uh, you know, only had like a passing interest to most people. But their their impact has lasted much longer. So I think the main takeaway from this documentary is that this music festival, it didn't last. It only ran for a few years and then it just didn't happen anymore. And once that once that faded away, I mean, everything about this was forgotten. I mean, this footage was just buried somewhere and it took all these years for it to finally be unearthed and to be assembled into this film. And, and it's almost like a time capsule in a way um, that it, maybe it wasn't even clear what this footage was going to be used for, but now that it's seen the light of day and, and it's you know, all the magic that's in it, I think it just shows that like the, the impact of, of these acts and this music during this particular moment in time They've had a lasting impact overall. And so I think if you're a fan of any of these acts, if you're a fan of soul music or R&B or blues or, or, or gospel or jazz, I mean, there's so many different uh, areas that this covers. Um, there's something in here for you. And I think it's, it's also interesting to just see it maybe through a little bit of a different lens. Like, I didn't know Stevie Wonder could play drums like that. I didn't know Stevie Wonder could really even play drums. But again, if you think about it, it is Stevie Wonder. So what can't he play? But anyway, I I would say that uh, this one, Summer of Soul, I would give that a really a positive, uh, a solid recommendation. Check it out. All right, on to, let's get on to number 52. This one is Miss Sharon Jones. And this is a, this is a documentary that... Um, I really felt like uh, was very much needed because as long as I've known about Sharon Jones, um, I it I feel like it hasn't been long enough. Like I feel like I found out or I started listening. I found her music somehow, maybe like 2000, 2014, 2015. And I thought, oh, this is somebody new on the scene. This is somebody that has kind of, you know, found some success and this is a fresh new face. And I understood she was an, an older woman, but I didn't realize that I was late to the party. You know, I was on that, that maybe second wave or later wave. Like there were people that knew about Sharon Jones way before that. 
And how do I know that? Well, one, because this documentary shows it. Um, this is a documentary directed by Barbara Koppel in 2015. And uh, the interesting thing here is that it it is about the music and it is about her talent, but it's also about her struggle and her grappling with being diagnosed with cancer and how that affected not only the music, but her outlook on things. And so it starts off, the documentary starts off, she's diagnosed with stage two pancreatic cancer. Uh, and this is in 2013. And it shows her doing the thing that we all have to do at some point where we have to put away the the better parts of ourselves. And for her, I guess, being the the talented performer and just be a regular person. And she has to go in for tests and exams and chemotherapy and uh, surgery and, and really shows that her struggle is real. And anybody who's dealt with cancer, who's either had it or knows somebody who had it, uh, or is currently dealing with it, you know that it is a real struggle. And so seeing this person who on, on in her songs, on film, on tape, whatever, was such a powerhouse, such a strong voice and a talent, start to slowly be reduced into someone who is, uh, is human, just like all of us. Um, it's an interesting look at what it takes, not, not just to be talented. I mean, you, you can be talented without any effort, but what it takes to summon that talent. You know, it, it follows her through this process of going through the treatment and trying to, trying to get back into the studio, trying to, uh, keep things, you know, moving with the band and with all the musicians that work with her and, and in a way kind of rely on her because she's the voice of the whole thing. And, and yet at the same time, I mean, she's got to do things that are hard for anybody to do, which might can, you know, consist of, uh, she has to make considerations for like her, her, you know, what her wishes are like being, cremated or, you know, effects of the treatment, like losing her hair and what that does to a person, you know, their, to their mindset, and especially a woman and especially a woman who's going to be on stage and on camera. I mean, those are all things that can hit you in hard ways and in ways that you're not expecting. And so, you know, to hear her say it is in terms of she had maybe resigned herself to never being like a real superstar, like a, an A-list musician, you know, uh, or a performer. Because, you know, one thing is like the type of music that they play. It's not popular music at, anymore, but it's still great music. But it's just not the thing that would make somebody, would not put somebody into into superstar status these days, Right. So she had already resigned to never really being like a, you know, top tier celebrity, but she didn't necessarily even want that. 
she was not concerned about stardom. She was concerned about recognizing and, and using her talent, her gift, which is her voice. And so to, to be able to recognize that and to use that, to, to turn that into something, to get you through a hardship, like, like cancer, going through cancer. Um, it's really, um, it's really powerful to watch up close like that and unflinching. I mean, there, there are probably some moments in here that are maybe a little unbecoming of a, you know, a performer or a, or a singer. Um, but I think the, the main thing is that this was hard. This was a hard experience. And I mean, there's, there's a point here where the cancer goes into remission or, or is, is essentially cleared up after so much treatment. And she's able to get back into the studio and work with the band again and get in her strength up. And they put on, because there's a new release, there's an album that's being released and they go up on, they, they go up to a show and do a show for the album release. And it's a sold out, it's a sold out crowd. And getting on stage, she realized that she's going to have some trouble just in terms of her stamina, but also um, trying to remember all the lyrics. And I mean, there's a moment where she's on stage, she starts singing the song and she realizes she doesn't have it. She, she forgot the lyrics and she, she's got to find it. And it's, it's a little uncomfortable to watch, but when you see how she pulls it through, she saves it. She turns it into a thing that she can own. I mean, that's using talent. It takes talent to do that. And so watching that all play out and watching her get back to it and get back into the music again, finding that groove again, uh, that was really, it was inspiring, really. I mean, there's a lot that I could say about how you know, going through hardship, going through adversity, it gives you that character. It gives you that perspective about, you know, how to do things better in, in your life and all that. And I mean, those are all true. But when you see it, I, I guess to me, it's different to either think about it in theory or think about my own experience, but to see someone else's experience and see it so really kind of detailed and and in depth. It's, uh, it's, it's really inspiring to watch. And not only that, but the music's still great. I mean, her, her music is, is a throwback to the older, like 60s and 70s style of, of soul music, but, um, but with a little bit of a modern flair to it. Uh, but I, I just appreciate so much the talent, but also the strength that this woman has shown. And so that's why I feel like this documentary, it's, I don't know, you know, how it was received or whatever, but I thought it was great. And I would really recommend this one also. And if you, if you've never heard of Sharon Jones, check out the music also. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. You know, this documentary gives a look behind the scenes, but the music itself, if you're into this style or this era of music, Sharon Jones is someone you should know. So definitely check this out. All right, now let's move on. We're going to move on to number 53. This is Muscle Shoals. 
And this is a documentary from 2013. It's directed by Craig Camillier. And did I say it right? Maybe. Um, and what it is, it's a look at a recording studio built by Rick Hall in Muscle Shoals, which is uh, along the Tennessee River in Alabama. And it's a studio that Rick Hall built because he had a fascination with music. He had a certain talent for it, maybe not performing it, but for understanding it and for recognizing good music and good sounds. And he built this studio. He put a band together, like a studio band, um, you know, session players. They were called the Swampers. And, you know, when you think about all the artists that came through this part of the, you know, this, this studio, this part of the world in Alabama uh, and put out so many hits. I mean, you've got artists like Percy Sledge, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, um, so many. I mean, Dwayne Allman, Leonard Skinner, that, and, and the list goes on from there. I mean, those are just the earlier ones, but there, there are so many that went through this studio and found found this new way of working in terms of creating music and coming up with ideas and fine tuning their voice and their musical you know, identity. Um, because one, it's kind of located out in the middle of nowhere in Alabama versus being in New York or, or in a major city where there's so many things that can take your eye off the ball in terms of your creativity and your output and here, you know, part of the, I, I guess, part of the thinking was that this is removed from everything. This, you, you are detached from the rest of the world being here. And so you have no choice but to focus on your music and what you're doing and how you're doing it. And so, you know, the, the, the way that it's shown, I mean, they're, they're going through basically from their first hit, which was by uh, Jimmy Hughes. And it was steal away. It was the first record that they cut. And it just showed that they were willing to try anything and do anything and be open to ideas and collaboration that uh, it led to this, this sound, the, this muscle show sound. And um, you know, the, the studio that he built is called fame Fame Studios, um, it really is responsible for a lot of artists that came out of the 60s and into the 70s. And it had a very specific sound and a style um, that, uh, you know, others probably try to reproduce. And, you know, similar to a way that like something Motown might have done where they built a studio, they built a certain group of musicians and they anchored that to every other like artist or performer that came through there. And so you kind of had real tight quality control on the type of music that you were putting out. And, um, and yet, you know, you would have artists that come through there and they work a different way or they see things musically. They see things uh, in their own way. And there's, you know, there's instances that, that are shown here where, someone like Wilson Pickett or Aretha Franklin come through and 
they don't like working this way or they don't understand how y'all how y'all are doing this like this. You know, how are y'all making hits when it, it just seems like we're just messing around? And so when they do finally get into that groove, when they do all start to really line up and start to make good music, you, you see that it doesn't have to be a factory, you know, which I think was, I'll talk about it later, but I think that was sort of the idea with Motown where it was very much like, not cookie cutter, but it was very by the numbers. It was like you kind of knew all the pieces you could play with and you put them all in the right order or you mix them around here and there and you still have magic. Well, here it was a lot more like we're going to start from scratch every time. And sometimes it's going to be good. Sometimes we're going to have to really work on it and bang something out. But we're going to keep doing it until we get it. And I think that was a, a big part of it is the strive for... It was like an attention to details or, or a desire to really make this the best it could be, you know, to his ears, to the artist's ears, and ultimately to, to sell albums, you know, to, to make some money and to do good work. And so there was always a, that, that feeling of chasing perfection. And, and yet it wasn't about being precise necessarily, it was about finding the right feeling, finding the right mood and the right tone to the music. You know, there's a lot in this that is about the musicians that began the, the studio, the, the Swampers, that they were, one, they were all white guys. And they were all just good old boys who had some musical background and not specifically in, in soul music, but they had some musical interests and it was more about them learning to find the right sound by working together. You know, they, they it's, and that's where maybe it's different from something like Motown where, you know, it, it was about just creating something good and having fun doing it. But that also meant that there were less kind of rules to the game. Is we could do whatever. We could make it sound funky. We could make it sound greasy and grimy. We can make it sound, you know, just really rough. But if that's what you're going for, if that's the style, that's the, the tone you want to bring to it, then that's what you have to do. And so there's a lot that uh, comes out of this era, you know, and the Swampers themselves at some point even take their talent, take the band and they leave Rick Hall to go create their own thing. And, you know, it even goes into some of the friction that that caused. Because artists still came to Muscle Shoals and they wanted to work with somebody that was going to create a hit for them. And sometimes that was Rick Hall and sometimes that was the Swampers. And in ways that was a rivalry that probably should have never happened because ultimately they all probably worked the best together. But in the end, everybody still got good music out of it. And so when you look at how many artists are in this film and how many musical acts and how many songs that came out of this, you know, this small little town in Alabama, um, it's really unbelievable. And I'm glad like a documentary like this exists because if you don't know the history of these songs or even the people behind them, you might just assume that this was maybe done in every other, in, in the way that every other hit album was done. 
but they were not. So there's a real magic here. And then part of that has to do with Rick Hall himself and his vision, but also his determination to do it his way, which I have a lot of respect for. I, I, I like that. And so I would say, you know, Muscle Shows, if you haven't seen this one, this is another recommendation for sure. Really, I'm, look, I'm just going to tell you all these are going to be recommendations. So if you have any appreciation for this style of music, check this out. All right, so let's move on. Let's keep this moving here because this one is uh, this one is one that's kind of special to me. I think this is number fifty four, and this is Thunder Soul, and this is a documentary by director Mark Landsman uh, from two thousand ten. And this one I have a special appreciation for because this is uh, this is from my hometown, and this is about Kashmir Senior High School stage band. Uh, and Kashmir High School is here in Houston, in the Houston area. And that's that's where I was born and raised. And so this looks at the senior high school stage band from the 1970s, I think specifically 1972, 74. Uh, but that class that went on to really just transcend the whole thing of being a high school stage band. I mean, they went into basically being known around the world for their music. And a lot of this is dependent on their teacher, their their school music teacher, Conrad Johnson, who was the talent behind and, and the visionary behind a lot of what they did. And not only what they did, but how they thought about music and how that maybe carried with them for the rest of their lives. And so... One aspect of this documentary is looking back at the history of the school, the history of the the band, and even stage bands in general, like what they typically were and what Kashmir brought to the game that changed it. And the other part of this is about those band members from the early 70s reuniting you know, 30 years later to put on a concert for Conrad Johnson, for their high school music teacher. And I, there's something really touching about a part of this that I wasn't expecting. And that is that it's not just about the music. It's not just about the talent it takes to play the music. It's about the vision. It's about the legacy. And, you know, all of these documentaries, they're all about the impact that this music has had on people over all these years, decades now. But here, I mean, the the music is a big part of this. But the other big part of this documentary is about the impact that this one man had on his students and it's not really clear that that's what the goal is here but by the end of this film you really see it i mean you really get that these grown people in a way they step back into that band room that that studio uh the area where they rehearse and all that they almost revert to being them, their younger selves. You know, they got their instruments and it's like, 
what what is that? What does that do to a person to step back in time like that in a way? And yet it's all possible because of this man, because of Conrad Johnson, who had the vision, had the and not only the vision, but had the courage to do this. I mean, it's 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 illustrated in the film that high school stage bands, I mean, they were not necessarily meant to do what this band did. I think by design. You know, it, it almost seemed that high school stage bands were there as a way to learn music and to play music, but not to excel at music and not to innovate in music. And yet that's what this man brought to it. He didn't want to just teach students and he didn't want to just have them recite music. He wanted to have them push it, push it to a new level, you know, just really change things up, be unique, be distinct and be themselves. And I, you know, I feel like that's what makes, that's what makes a teacher have impact on a student or on the people around them. And so that was a, that was a really powerful part of this that I wasn't ready for. I mean, aside from that, you know, there, there are some interesting parts of this where one of the students, uh, his name is Craig Baldwin. He, I get the idea is basically organizing and managing this reunion and this whole thing, this whole event. And he, he quick, you know, early on explains like kind of who they were in school and maybe what kind of became of them. And he's one of them that he says, uh, if it weren't for this band and, and this teacher and this experience, you know, he wouldn't have the life he has. He would have probably gone down some bad roads and probably ended up in some bad situations. And so this, in a way, probably saved his life. And to see him be the one to turn around and almost kind of repay the, the debt or, or you know, re, um, return the favor of bringing these people back together again making sure everybody's good, making sure everybody has the, the right intentions and, and then pulling it off and executing the show. Um, I mean, it's a really, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I, I mean, it's the thing of like, honestly, it's a thing of love, you know, and, and you really see it. There's a really, there's a really hard moment. There's a really touching moment towards the end when he goes to see uh, his teacher, Conrad Johnson, who at this point is in his 90s and is in the hospital. And you see there that it don't matter that this was his teacher, that this was maybe, you know, at one point somebody who uh, was just an authority figure and maybe he didn't have, you know, a, a... a full respect for or understanding of as we all do when we're teenagers in high school. But you could see now all these years later as a grown man dealing with a much older man, that there's real love there. 
And it's not about, oh, this family or that's someone you know. It's just that's just a basic human on a human level that's love there. And that was moving, man. That, that's real move. That's had me move a tear over here. I mean, because it's, it shows that it's not just about the music. Music is a part of what brought these people together. But that's not the, the only impact that they had. The, the impact they had on each other was much deeper than that. So I, I really appreciate the, the effort that went into this and the, the spotlight on this. You know, the, the spotlight on this not just being another musical act, but being an act that was born out of just education. You know, that, that's a big part of this where, you know, uh, Conrad Johnson, prof, he, he does speak in several parts of this film. And one of the things he, he really pushes is that it's about the importance of education in high school, musical education. You know, you, you've got to have the arts, you've got to have uh, that creative outlet, that, that way to express yourself because without that, what are we then, you know? And without that, what else might people get into? You know, what kind of trouble might they get into? What kind of bad situations are they get into? Because they don't have that, that release, that creative outlet, like these young kids and so many other young kids have. And, you know, the, the importance of having this kind of education of music and the arts in school. I mean, I agree with it. I think it's important. And to see that that is a lot of what drove him to do things the way he did and make these students, these kids and now adults, reach the, the heights that they were able to reach. I mean, it's because of that. It's because that is what mattered to him. And so I think overall, this is a, it's a, it's a really, truly like a, a moving tribute to this man and, and his, his vision, his talent and his legacy that he, he couldn't do this forever. I mean, you know, he, when <laughs> it's even pointed out that at one point, you know, this band, this stage band, high school stage band, they go through all these competitions. They sweep them all. They just kill everybody else. And they get to, uh, where did they go? They went to, um, I guess, a national competition in Mobile, Alabama, of all places. They killed everybody over there. Then they went to Europe. Then they went to Japan. I mean, they went all over the world. And the fact that they did all this on their talent and on their teacher's vision of what they could achieve, I, I mean, what more of a legacy can you make out of that? I mean, that's huge. And so the fact that they all were able to reunite and come back together and find that groove again and do something that recognized and celebrated this man and, and everything that they accomplished. I, Hey man, I'm just glad it was filmed. It was saved and, and documented for prosperity because this is about creativity at its finest. So that one, I would definitely recommend you check it out. It's a little bit harder to find, I think, 
Um, but if you can find it, that's Thunder Soul. And that is number 54. So let's keep it moving. We're going to keep this moving a little faster here because these next two, um, they're a little bit uh, two sides of the same coin. This is number 55. This is Hitsville, The Making of Motown. And this is a, this is a documentary from 2019 by director Ben Turner. And um, this is basically how Motown happened. And it starts with uh, Barry Gordy, you know, working in the auto factories in Detroit and, you know, getting to know Smokey Robinson and they put together their first hit. They're building a sound, you know, they're working with, um, you know, their, their studio band, the studio players. They start getting into contact with all the different artists of the era, you know, that, that became artists of that era, like Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, the Temptations, you know, they, they're just, this is the who's who of Motown, right? This is the, the whole story of how it happened and, and everything that was involved. And I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing to take away from this is that this is about building the brand, building a, a, an identity, but also, you know, having your level of quality, having your, your high standards and sticking to it and being consistent and not wavering on that. You know, there are a lot of, I guess, quote unquote rules that happen or that are developed out of this process out of the Motown process. And that's why I said earlier, like it's a little bit of a factory mentality. You know, you can kind of reassemble all the same pieces in different ways and still come out with hits. You know, there's a, there's a, there's an art to that. There's a real science to it also. Um, and, and look, the, the results are undeniable. I mean, play any Motown song and tell me you don't recognize it. Now, there are some that are probably more well-known than others, but pretty much every song that's played in this documentary I've heard before, if not several times before or several hundred times before. I don't know. But the the thing I took away from this is that there's a point where – there's a couple of points, but there's a point where you know the, the songs become – about much deeper topics than they started out with. You know, Motown was really built on the back of like love songs and and a little bit of the, you know, the blues and, and gospel mentality of, you know, we're singing about heartbreak or we're singing about, you know, baby, baby, I love you or whatever. But then there's a point in time where in the late 60s, things start to change and the world around Motown starts to change. And, you know, there's there's some... Moments that come up, like either the civil rights movement or Vietnam, uh, just, you know, uh, inequality. The, the, there's so many issues that are on people's minds that the music had stopped, uh, it had failed to acknowledge. And so when that pivot happens with Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, it, it, it almost opens up a new territory for Motown. And... You, you you know that becomes a, a big point in just in terms of music in general, but really from Motown who hadn't just kind of shied away from that. This 
it was just full of potential, full of new opportunities now to create a whole new, uh, I almost say a whole new genre of music. But, you know, the fact that it starts to fade and, and maybe, I say fade, but it becomes something different. One, because the musical landscape is starting to shift. You know, the, the music that Motown made wasn't, it didn't hold the same weight that it had in the previous years or the previous decade. And so as you go into the 70s, uh, Motown feels like old music now. And, you know, there there's a point where you you start to see that you start to see the end of that era, you know, and it, it's even pointed out in this, in this documentary, but ultimately the legacy remains is that this music changed a lot of people's lives. And I say changed their lives in terms of their feelings about what music can mean to them. And so there's a part in here where a lot of these artists, they start to reach this status where they're, they're traveling the world and, and they're even just finding new parts of this country that uh, are different and maybe not as accepting, maybe very accepting. And, you know, the, the fact that they all know Motown music, though, that speaks to the power of it. You know, it's not necessarily about who they are, but it's about what the songs represent. And at some point it becomes like, well, it not only represents a certain feeling or a certain way of thinking, but it starts to represent a certain time. And once we move out of that time or beyond past that time, then new music feels like it needs to come around and take its place. And, and it happens with everything, but still the, the impact remains. And so, so that is Hitsville, the making of Motown. That's number 55, but I want to go right from that straight into number 56, and that is Standing in the Shadows of Motown. And this one is the one that I really think is the eye-opener here because this is the one that uh, – this was from actually much earlier. This is from 2002, director Paul Justman, and this is about the Funk Brothers, and this is the band, the studio band that played for Motown. Now, all the Motown hits, all the artists that came through there, this is the band that played behind them and made all those hits possible. And this is where I feel like um, this is where the real attention needs to be. Because everybody knows who Smokey Robinson is. Everybody knows who the Temptations are and, and you know, Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross. And everybody knows all of them. But do you know who the Funk Brothers are? You know all their music. Or do you know who they are? And, and that was a point that was not lost on me in, in this documentary that, you know, there was so much in that era, in that time, the 50s, that, you know, a lot of black music was being kind of uh, adopted or appropriated by white artists, you know, like Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and 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 all those. But here was a chance where these artists could come together, make their music and put it on records and make, make real hits with it. And yet 
at the same time, it's like nobody remembers them. People know the singers. They don't know the musicians behind them. And I could get that that's a point of frustration. That's a point of, uh, I mean, it could almost seem disrespectful. But, you know, they always kept their focus on the music and doing something interesting, doing something fresh and innovative, um, but still being consistent. Right? It's still Motown, so it's still got a certain sound. It's got a certain vibe to it. And so that's where... You know, these artists that had come together from their backgrounds in jazz and, you know, they brought all kinds of other influences into the mix, like the the Latin influence and Afro-Cuban styles and you know, different tempos and different, you know, techniques and, and, and all these things that is just this soup of, of experience and talent and ideas that turned into... Motown, the Motown sound. And so I, I really think that, you know, if you follow this along, like if you watch this and the previous uh, Hitsville, um, you watch them back to back, you trace kind of the same steps, right? But you, like I said, you're seeing it from two different angles. And here you see that from both of them, there's a turning point when we get to Marvin Gaye's what's going on. Like in some respects, it's a more socially conscious, more aware uh, song about the times. And on the other hand, it's a song that finally let the band expand and grow uh, in, in terms of their technique and in terms of their ideas uh, musically, you know, w with this song. Like this was just, like you said, this song for a multitude of reasons broke through so many barriers and walls and, and, you know, changed so many things for music. And, um, you know, if anything, I think the, the, the downside that this documentary illustrates is that success and, um, you know, certain status can get to anybody's head. And, you know, there's a point here where it's, it's shown that this band that had come together and had played together and worked and, and really seen through a lot of strange and, and hard and, and fun times, they were all just kind of dismissed, just disregarded. And especially when Motown just, decided to leave Detroit and went to Los Angeles and didn't tell the band and didn't bring the band with them. And, you know, these musicians who did so much of this top tier, like highly recognized and highly known music, they were just left to fend for themselves. And, uh, you know, that's a real, that's a hard pill to swallow, but the fact that their music lives on and a documentary like this exists, I think that's hopefully that's at least some recognition and an acknowledgement of all their contributions. So if you had to watch either of the two, Hitsville, check it out maybe. If you're just maybe just trying to understand uh some, you know, these uh 
parts of soul music and, and maybe some of the bass kind of history of it. But if you want a deeper cut, this is it. Staying in the Shadows of Motown. That's number 56. Now, let's get to this last one here, because I want to get to this one quickly, because this one, I feel like, means more to me than anything about Motown. Not that I don't like Motown. I just like this more. So this is number 57. This is Lightning in a Bottle. This is a documentary from 2004, directed by Antoine Fuqua, who uh, normally does like action movies, crime movies. But here, took a step back into a different realm and went into uh, making a documentary about the story of the blues. This really does go to the beginning. This starts with the roots in African music and culture uh, into some of the, the spirituals um, out of you know the slave era and brings it forward into the 20th century in terms of... Um, you know, the earlier artists like uh, Robert Johnson and Lead Belly and, and some of the songs that, you know, to hear the original recordings, it probably doesn't sound like a whole lot, you know, in terms of the quality. But when you listen to the content and when you listen to the emotion in them, you know there's a lot under the surface there. And it's only, you know, the only shame is that it wasn't preserved or or... I guess, recorded better. But like I said, that shouldn't, that shouldn't necessarily take away from any of the appreciation for it because it's more about the sentiment. And, you know, here we get to see, at least we get to see some of those songs, those early recordings of this artist brought forward to today and perform, you know, in a full concert setting and so the thing that I took away from this that I wasn't really ready for was a, probably the most succinct explanation of the blues that I've ever heard. Like, what is the blues? You know, there, there's uh, several artists here that are talking about what it means to them and where they got started. But the there's a there's an instance here where um, one of the artists, I think it's Sun House, he's talking about what is the real blues. Like he's seen, you know, artists that just pick up a guitar or pick up their instrument and they play what sounds like the blues, got the right tempo, got the right notes, the right chords, even got the right words. But it's not the blues. It reminds me that the Blues is not just about a technique. It's not a style. I mean, it is a feeling, right? I mean, that's why they call it the blues. And the way it's explained is so succinct, so succinct. It's just so simple. It's like the blues is love. Simple as that. You either got it or you want it. Or you lost it. <laughs> or you don't know how you're going to live without it. And so if it's only about that, if that's what the blues is, and it's even it's even elaborated on a little bit in terms of the blues is a way for men who 
probably didn't feel like it was okay for them to be crying about, you know, losing a woman or, or being down or whatever, that this was a way for them to, to vent that, to get that heartache out, to get that defeat out. And, and for women, it was a way to, to get out their anger and their angst and frustration. You know, we all got things that we have a hard time with. And this is a way to do that, to, to release that, to get it out, right? To take it off your shoulders. And so, you know, there's a lot that uh, if you don't listen to the blues, you don't understand the blues. Maybe it's hard to understand what is so good about it because it sounds like it's just a downer. But uh, there's a magic to it. It's It's hard to... It's maybe hard to explain. I, you know, for for a multitude of reasons, I grew up around it or listening to it or having it in my ear at some point or another. And uh, so I really relate to it, at least on a, well, on a musical level, but on an emotional level too. Like I get the idea of like you, you know, you got to go there to get here. Like you got to sing about the bad things to feel better about yourself. It's kind of how it works out in a way. I mean, um, that's that's really the power of the blues. And look, and it's all illustrated here. Like I, I even think, well, sometimes it's maybe just like a certain segment of blues music or whatever. But uh, I mean, you've got representation in this documentary from all the different subgenres or styles or or whatever of of blues music you've got texas blues you got chicago blues you got uh you know the the artists like john lee hooker bb king you've got dr john you got all kinds of artists here representing so much you got <laughs> you got uh bonnie ray you got robert cray you got um oh who else is in john fogarty is in this aerosmith is in this who doesn't really play the blues, but kind of, kind of does. Um, all right. So I have a couple of problems with this documentary there. One's not that important. It depends on your taste. The other one, it really, it really was a problem for me. And in this documentary, there are artists, today's artists, modern artists that are doing their takes on a lot of these you know, old or, or early blues songs. In this, there's a tribute to John Lee Hooker and Chuck D comes out from Public Enemy. Now, I like Public Enemy. I like Chuck D. I like a lot of the... I like a lot of the intent and I like a lot of the ideas in the music. But Chuck D doing a cover of John Lee Hooker's Boom Boom, but turning it into a whole different song. And not only a whole different song, but an anti-war song, which, I mean, when this documentary was filmed, I guess that made sense. But it's not like it took the original song and flipped it or... You know, it's just, it totally goes 
counter or goes sideways really to what the song is actually about. And so I just feel like if that's what you were going to do, why didn't you just let somebody else do it? I, I, this was the one part of this film because I love John Lee Hooker. Like there's a couple artists and, and, and they're in this film that are like uh, my top two or three. And John Lee Hooker is for sure one of them. And this is one of his like most recognizable songs. And yet I don't know what they were doing in this. I don't know what this, what this anti-war no boom, boom is. This is, this is, look, man, I just, I don't want to say it because of this documentary, what it means to me, but this one part of this documentary is kind of trash. Anyway, look, the point of this is that this documentary, it's said in here, and I like the, the way it's succinctly put, is that this is not a funeral. Like the, this concert, this film itself is not a funeral for this music. This music is still alive. And it's a celebration of it. And it's a, a recognition and acknowledgement of all the people that have been a part of it. And so I think the sentiment there being, look, as long as there is love and as long as there's the pain that comes with love, there's always going to be the blues. All right. So look, that's number 57. That's lightning in a bottle. That is it for this week of Film Streak. Oh, these were very different. I like being able to just go in and just listen to all this great music and hear from these artists and get ideas of what it took for them to pull some of these songs together and and make stuff that has lasted the test of time. And so we're going to try a couple of different things for next week. I'm going to do a few more of these documentaries, not about soul music, but definitely about music. And I'm going to intertwine that with some other stuff. So stay tuned. We'll uh, see you in the next episode. But uh, until then, hey, uh, go to Filmstreak, uh, filmstreak.com. You can subscribe. You can listen to other episodes. Go catch up on others. We've done over 50 films already. One every day. Um, but mostly go to filmstreak.com. You can listen there, subscribe in any of the uh, podcast places. Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever. And um, until then, keep watching those movies. <laughs> <laughs>